right, team. Welcome back to the Man Talk Show. And I am Connor Beaton. I'm your host. If this is your first time to the show, I just want to say welcome. And uh, this show is really dedicated to the betterment of you as a man in whatever way, shape, or form, whether you are wanting to better yourself, health and wellness, in your mindset, in your relationship, uh, in your sex life. This show is a culmination of guests and conversations that dives deep into a lot of these topics. And if you are not new to the show and you are a reoccurring guest, I just want to say thank you and share a little bit of gratitude for you continuing to tune into these episodes and these conversations. This show, this podcast has grown exponentially over the course of the last several months, over the course of this year. And that is largely due to you, dear listener, sharing the conversations with people in your life. So if you find this conversation fascinating, please don't hesitate to man it forward and share it with somebody in your life, man or woman, that you think would benefit from it, that you think would enjoy it. Uh, So let me tell you, with all of that said, a little bit about my guest. I actually met this gentleman at a uh, social function uh, a couple months ago, and we got to talking about his work, and his work is in the psychedelic field. So my guest today is Dr. Nicholas Bruce, and he is a licensed psychotherapist in Los Angeles, California, specializing in integrative ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. He is also a licensed internal family systems therapist, or IFS. He's certified in mindfulness facilitation at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center in Los Angeles, California, and as a compassionate cultivation teacher at Stanford University's Center for Compassion. He is also a therapist at the LA site for MAPS, sponsored phase three clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. So as you can imagine, Nick and I are going to dive deep into a few things. We're going to talk about, first and foremost, the the sort of fears and uh, worries and anxieties that can come along with having psychedelic experiences uh, or using these types of medicines, as he will refer to them as. We will talk about the a little bit about the different forms of psychedelic assisted therapy and how IFS or internal family systems parts work plays into that that work, how these things function on the brain and on the body and the nervous system, um, and how they can be very, very supportive for things like PTSD and trauma. Now, this will be part one of a two-part interview. The second part of the interview, as you'll hear us talk about at the end, uh, is going to be all about the different types of psychedelics that are out there and their so their sort of usage form. So we're going to go through psilocybin and ayahuasca and MDMA and, uh, and just sort of the gamut of psychedelics that are out there and what their use is and how they sort of differ, how they work on the body, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a really great conversation I felt to get into on how we as human beings can deal with fear, can deal with anxiety, can deal with panic. Um, whether that's existential or you know because of a specific trauma event or PTSD event, or if you're just somebody that on a on a regular basis just has a little bit of an anxiety, or you know you're somebody that like most of us is a little stressed out in life. I think a lot of people during the pandemic and post pandemic are carrying more stress than maybe they were in their previous life. So without any further delay, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And like I said, I, I encourage you to, to share it with somebody in your life that you know will enjoy it or listen to this conversation with somebody that's been curious about psychedelics and sort of have a conversation about it. 
And I sincerely hope that you enjoy this and part two of my dialogue with Dr. Nicholas Bruce. All right, Nick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Connor, thanks for having me. I'm doing super well this morning. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honor to have you here. I met you at a, a gathering in upstate New York and got a chance to sort of learn a little bit about you and your work. And I was like, oh man, I would love to have you on the show. And so it's, I'm glad that we finally got to sort of sit down and, and do this, although virtually, it would have been good to do this in person, but you're in LA, I'm in New York. <laughs> One of us would have had to get on a plane, but um, I'm glad that we're here to to have this discussion today. Let's Let's start with the question that I always start with, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Sure thing. And yeah, it's actually what I'm thinking of is quite relevant to our, to our topic. It is um, around my first psychedelic experience, in which I was completely sober. It was not a, a psychedelic compound involved. So, so to kind of set the scene 20 years ago, I went deep in a meditation insight Vipassana um, practice, practicing a lot at home, doing retreats of days and weeks, and then jumped to entering this retreat center in Western Massachusetts for a three-month silent meditation retreat. This place is really set up super well. It's, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of retreat from daily life and really focus on the content of what's arising in your mind and your body. So there's, there's no phone, there's no working out. It's really just noticing, noticing, noticing. So 10 days in, kind of getting the lay of the land, kind of knowing how things go. There's take two meals a day, breakfast, little oatmeal-y, lunches. But I don't remember what we had for lunch. It was not very exciting. It's, it's, they really do a good job of keeping the, the outside kind of stimulus down in order to help focus. 20 days in, and this is, it's basically that the drill is 16 hours a day sitting and walking, sitting and walking meditation and rotating throughout. And my, my hips are hurting because that's, that's a lot of sitting to be doing. Any yoga? Any yoga. So I did was stretching each morning, which okay. actually that reminds me that it really transformed my body, my hips uh -huh. pre that retreat and after like my hips are open now and I can sit in a way I've been sitting the rest of my life and in, in much more. My hips have, have shifted over that, that amount of time. The 30 or so days in, I'm just watching my mind do things. It's like reaching for things. I'm not talking with anyone. And yet I'm kind of having a little love affair with someone I've never met or, or, or spoken to. I, I'm in an argument with somebody else, just probably by the way they walk or something like that. So really getting to know the mind and the body. Jumping ahead now, 60, 60 days in to this retreat, I have accumulated such concentration that I am in a flow state that I, through athletics, through any other thing I've never been in. And this is extended. This is over several days where anything that would enter my mind or my visual fields was met with a complete embrace. There was no suffering, just flow. Just imagine like your best day amplified for multiple days. It was awesome. A couple of days into that, something crept in. I was like, oh, that's Actually, I'm a little annoyed, I had a little annoyance at that, and then an irritation, and then, and then uh, a frustration. And then I could start to feel that in my body. It kind of came on slow, and so I'm just like witnessing, witnessing this. And then 
or in a couple days of this kind of like bumping up against something, I can't quite understand what's going on because I've just been flying in this flow. Now I've got this kind of crunchiness going on. A couple days into that, and after one particularly long, grueling day, 16 hours of just like being with this crunchiness, the last meditation in the day, the bell rings, main meditation hall clears out, and I'm sitting, 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 sitting. And then it's like, okay, man, time to call it, head, head to bed. I get up, and as I'm walking out of this hall, I just kind of get a sense to sit down again. And I don't even go back to my cushion. I just plop down on the cushion on the way out the door. And as I sit down, I close my eyes. Kind of when I close my eyes, I blasted off like, like traveling through galaxies, different dimensions, not in a body, just oneness with everything. And at the same time, nothing at all. I am like in shock. I open my eyes. And I'm in the deafening silence of this empty meditation hall, which is this beautiful space. It's this old chapel with vaulted ceilings, and I'm surrounded by empty meditation cushions. I close my eyes, and back in this vastness, this oneness, it's incredible. I'm in both shock and awe. It's quite exhilarating. Open my eyes, just back in the meditation hall. So this goes on for I have no idea how long, but at some point, fear started to creep in and it was first a little little tug on my sleeve just like um yeah this is great but what if this doesn't go away like how are you going to be in relationship and then it started to escalate to like have i just lost my mind so i take that and i'm at some point i'm just heading to bed the fear is revved up now to tear and it's snowing outside i go outside hoping that the that the cold will kind of snap me out of this thing. Because every time I close my eyes, I'm some other dimension or galaxy. That doesn't work. The cold doesn't, doesn't work. And so I crawl into bed. And the last thing I remember that night, I, I was not in the habit of praying, but I had a prayer on my lips. Please let me go back to normal at the end of this or when I wake up. So close my eyes to go to bed out there in this incredibleness again. I wake up, eyes open. Everything's back to normal. Close my eyes, check it out. Close my eyes, check it out. Back to normal. Back to normal, but forever changed. My mind, my experience was stretched in a way that it's never returned. My perspective has increased. It's a defining moment because of what I've what I learned through that. We're not, we're not these limited, I'm not, we're not these limited bodies and these tiny little perspectives that we walk around with. The connection. Uh, the the illusion of dis of of separateness got kind of got a, a a fatal blow at that time. The the sense of aloneness I didn't even know to the degree I was carrying this kind of sense of aloneness. It also got really brought down several notches. Everything that I was kind of hanging on to, whether I was super aware of it or not, got softened, and the curiosity got turned up, and it's really informed the work I do and, and how I do it. That's a big one, man. I appreciate you sharing that experience. And it's, and it's interesting because when you said three months silent Vipassana, I was like, Oh my goodness, <laughs> you're entering into the vortex. You know, that's, that's, that's quite the, that's quite the undertaking to embark on in the first place. I'm curious. I want to just go through back a, a little bit. Like what, what compelled you to embark on that in the first place of going to a, a three-month Vipassana? Because that's, 
yeah, it's a big commitment. And especially at that young of an age, I mean, that's just something must have pulled you towards that, or you must have had some internal inclination of why you were embarking on that in the first place. Yeah. My wife looks back and calls that, calls that my monk phase. I was mm. like really going for it. I was super skinny, had this beard kicking. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I really wanted, it was kind of, I would say it started out with a bit of a, a curiosity and then shifted into a struggle, with some existential questions, like from very early on. I remember being really, not then, but now I would call it kind of just existential or questions of consciousness and wanting to explore that. As a kid looking around, like, wait a minute, what the hell is going on? This is like, everybody just seems to like just be going with this, but nobody knows what's really going on here. And so how to how to meet that or how to make sense of that has has been a, a quest for for quite some time. So it was not a full dive into a three-month retreat right away. There were there were several week retreats along the way. And then it also timed up with before it was an opportunity to to use that time to go deep and again have that that container. And then it led me into some some travel in Southeast Asia and and studying uh, Buddhist psychology and a number of other things that have really led me here. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you were talking about the experience itself and it blasted off, which I think a lot of people who have done any type of psychedelics or had that type of experience happen during some type of, of deep meditation experience or even breath work, right? Breath work can, can produce it. I've definitely had lots of breath work sessions where I just get taken out into this very different experience. I'm curious in terms of that first experience, what you took with, took from it, what were some of the quote unquote lessons, if you can form that into, into some sort of statement. And yeah. then secondly, I'm curious about the fear and the terror part of it, because I do think that that's a huge part of what people deal with when it comes to even just embarking on meditation or doing breath work or doing psychedelics is that fear arises, anxiety arises. And that's a huge part that I think people struggle with uh, when it comes to meditation. I remember sitting down to meditate, this is probably 12, 15 years ago now for the first time, closing my eyes and just sort of being like, ooh, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of anxiety that I'm all of a sudden present to. And so I'm, I would love for you to just speak to that as well. So I'll leave those two very large questions that we can maybe explore a little bit on your doorstep. <laughs> yeah, man, love your questions. The uh, to the first part, and I'm so glad you mentioned. While we might talk a bit about psychedelics, the there's other paths. Obviously, meditation. You mentioned breath work. I've had one of the most profound, informative experiences around grief within a holotropic breath work session dance, ecstatic dance. Of course, there's been, you know, traditions of for many, many, many millennia of, of how music and, and different rituals can invoke these different spaces. Even like when working out and kind of hitting an edge and like pushing through an edge, sometimes as you put the weight down, there's a little bit of dizziness, which can kind of touch the kind of pick thread a little bit of just like this openness or kind of how we hold ourselves together most of the mm. day, which is a great thing and useful thing. But being able to tap in, whether through breath work or cold exposure, or all these, these different things is it expands our mind. So to that, to your first part of the question, 
it has kind of revealed a confidence or better yet, an okayness with being in the world as I am. And again, a situation where I didn't even know I kind of had been carrying like a, a survival mechanism, which obviously we all we all carry. But there was something about a softening or more presence with some of the activity or the parts that can get stirred. So having these expansive and maybe even peak moments, they can they can be kind of um, reference points for when we're like really caught up or really tied into some narrative or some limited way of thinking. Even a little tchotchke or something around that we have that can kind of remind us. Plants obviously can do that as well. So, and then I love that you, as you do, go kind of right to it with the, with the fear and the, and the terror. So the, again, this really highlights how kind of I, I had been walking through and can dip into kind of just walking through the world with being led by fear or as kind of my language, a part of me that's really scared about disconnection or relationship interfering with a relationship in some way or some criticism I have about myself or I imagine people perceiving like that really can get highlighted with these kind of forms of can help us into a non-ordinary state and we can leave with more relationship with our whole experience which just makes the invitation for the terror to be when my teacher puts it kind of as an aliveness sensation. So I can feel mm. this, this wrenching in my stomach and I might be just a breath away to feeling that as an aliveness sensation. That phrase kind of has this, this, this neutral tone to, Oh, aliveness. Okay. Even though when my mind gets involved with it, it's like, get this out of here. This is bad, dangerous, scary. It's heightened my awareness and deepen my relationship with all aspects of my experience. Yeah, I would, I mean, there's many things that I want or could say to that notion. And I remember, I don't remember where, but I was listening to a book and it was talking about how neurologically anxiety and excitement are almost identical. It's mm -hmm. like the, the, almost the exact same thing that's happening in the brain. It's like, well, that's fucking weird. It's like, <laughs> it's like, why would anxiety and excitement be relatively the same thing? But but, you know, I, I like this frame that you're putting around it is that fear, terror, the things that we can experience just in day-to-day -day life, but also that we can experience in, in maybe a, a non-ordinary state, that they're just a different version of aliveness. And we are often so uh, prone to wanting to avoid these things. I had a, a gentleman on the podcast a couple of times now, Stephen Jenkinson, who talks about how we live in a grief-phobic culture. And that there's just certain th experiences that we have as humans that are natural and normal that we tend to just avoid altogether, grief, fear. And so one of the things that we usually get into in our, in our men's weekends is, is what's your relationship to fear as a man and powerlessness? Because, mm -hmm. because for some people, they're, they're put into a position of powerless or they lived in fear for a very long time and didn't even know it. So I appreciate that, that explanation. I'm curious what bridge the gap for you? Like what actually got you into the work that you're doing today? Did that experience that you had in that monastery through this monastic phase that you, that you were in, did that propel you to want to explore psychedelics and the, the work that you do with internal family systems? Or was there some other experience that brought you into contact with that? Yeah. So uh, this tipping point between anxiety and excitement, I like the phrase anxiety 
is just excitement without enough breath or just basically mm. add a little bit of breath to your anxiety and, and see what happens. And sure, there are some variations of that. If there is a bear attacking you, you're, you're not <laughs> about that, about how much you breathe. The, the relationship with fear, as, as you were asking the question, this memory popped to mind. So I'm the youngest of six and that's with three older brothers. And I remember twice being pinned down by my older brothers and feeling that kind of like, oh shit, panic. And it wasn't like, there wasn't like a harshness and there wasn't like a, it wasn't a regular thing. I literally remember only two times, but it was so poignant to be that powerless, like I'm kind of the uh, the smallest. I joke the runt of of the family. So my my bigger brothers were like I had this this power over. And where my mind went, there it went. It picked up so fast, and it would search for all possibilities of a way of of getting out. It it and as I think back to it, it was it was panic actually. Mm. So the way that I I work with that, or actually the way that psychedelics can be a or these other models can can help with that one in a sense exposure exposure to having a novel experience of the expansion of your mind and also a, a wider perspective to hold and this as i'm speaking about it panic and kind mm. of seeing a little bit from the outside and obviously it's a world of difference when you're in the middle of panic or when you can have a little bit of, of perspective around it so i think that non-resistance is absolutely the kind of the name, name of the game. It's like, call it evolution or our highest, our capacity to really meet whatever's arising, resisting nothing. Yes, discerning. Yes, making choices along the way. Yes, having clear boundaries and, and bringing force when needed, but not resisting, including not resisting the grief and the unknown. I think some of the scariest thing for for men and maybe all all people is is an unknown particularly for men i think and so uh, establishing a relationship of like oh here i am again don't know and then noticing where we go where do we go when we're scared do we go into kind of getting around something do we do we shut down do we try to like go straight through it and I'm thinking how much um, jiu-jitsu has, has taught me about having these other like tools and options. Like when you're getting choked out for the first couple of times, that same panic starts to arise and then body can flail and, and all this. But then after putting in some training hours, it's like, oh, I see what's happening. Yep. I'm not going to last long with this, the chokehold that's on me now. So I'm going to have to get clear about where I place my attention. And if that placing of attention has kind of even the tone of the acceptance of what's happening and then making choices given that reality. And if that's a physical sensation, if we can break that down into a physical sensation, an acknowledgement that we've, we've been here before, I found that to be super helpful. And Connor actually relates to a lot of the psychedelic work that is happening for end-of-life anxiety, mm. which has been shown to be really helpful for individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make a note of that and we can circle back around to that. Cause I think that's, that'd be a very uh, interesting conversation to have about 
end-of-life anxiety and dealing with death. Stephen Jenkinson was the person that talked about living in a death-phobic culture, that we, mm-hmm. we don't like to talk about death or, or, or admit it, and that our, our culture is very much um, almost gearing towards wanting to end death entirely. And I know that there's some movements for that, but uh, so we can talk about that. Do you create any distinction? Because we, you know, here we've been talking about anxiety, fear, terror, panic. I'm sure that I'm sure that the listeners like, geez, like, <laughs> you know, like, where is this, where is this conversation going? Like we're, we just, we dove straight into the, straight into the deep end, you know, the sort of unsavory parts of, uh, uh, of the human experience that a lot of people tend to avoid, but do you create distinctions or how would you define the difference between anxiety and panic or fear and terror? And then sh- should we, or can we, or do we deal with those things differently? I can hear my listeners being like, Oh, I have, a, I have a lot of anxiety or oh, I've experienced panic attacks or I am afraid generally in my relationships or I've experienced things that, that were really terrifying. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, and I don't want to spend too much time with this, but I would love to get your take on, do those things get defined differently and do we address them differently or is the method somewhat the same? Yeah. I um, experience and, and work with people and seeing it on a spectrum like a, a minor annoyance to frustration, a crunchiness, some resistance to a full-blown, like hitting all, all the alarms kind of going off inside to where one's vision can literally get blurry in a, in a mm. panic attack and or the, the system can kind of shut down in ways. So different varieties or different levels of intensity call for different kind of tools or ways to meet what's arising. Mm. and practicing outside of panic kind of situations helps build a foundation, a kind of a touch point to, to go back to. Like when there's a lot of fear up, whether it's there's like a, a conversation that you're in that's like, oh, my heart is racing right now. The awareness and it, it, it will continue to come back to an awareness that then allows us to create a little bit of change or, or, or take action to that. So when I notice my heart is beating really fast, I then have a choice to feel my feet on the ground. Does it make my heart stop beating as, as fast? And yet at the same time, where I place my attention is one of the most important skills and said by Bruce Lee and, and other people in times of duress, we, we don't rise kind of necessarily to mm-hmm. the occasion. We, we fall to our level of training. So mm-hmm. morning practices of, of breath work and having a relationship with your breath, being able to notice where your breathing is at during a challenging conversation while reading emails, very important while sending emails <laughs> is, is really important. So there's a wide range, and I think anyone who commits to deepening their relationship with the full spectrum will be super well served. Yeah, it's it's interesting because one of the things that I've talked about over the years is this notion of expanding our tolerance, whether yeah. it's with our anger or our anxiety or our fears or even even that panic that some people can experience because of trauma or whatever it might be. And... That's a challenging undertake, I think, sometimes, because what people want, especially within our Western culture, is this 
this pill and this quick fix and this sort of like the silver bullet, right? It's like, well, just tell me what to do to get rid of it, to kill it off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to feel this one anymore. Some big pharma company has told me that I can take some pill and get rid of this. And so you're telling me to sit with it and accept it. And that sounds like some crazy, you know, some crazy nonsense sometimes, but it really is the path. I've gone down the Buddhism path as well and breath work and psychedelics. And, and the more that I've gone down that path, the more that I've realized that settling into an acceptance of what we're experiencing and beginning to invite that experience as friend and not foe, as challenging as it can be, really is an effective method and modality. And it's really, I find that it's sometimes challenging to almost like sell people on that. I don't know what else terminology to put on that, but, <laughs> but to like really convince people of like, no, I, I know that this is the thing that you really don't want to do, but it really is the, the, the path that will likely reap you a, a good amount of benefits. And I think sometimes, and now I'm going to shift the conversation into psychedelics. I think that sometimes in our culture, because there's so much existential anxiety, I'm making a statement. I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on whether or not you believe that that's true. But I think that a lot of times people see psychedelics sometimes as that silver bullet, right? It's like, oh, I have childhood trauma. I'm going to go take some psychedelics and I'll be fixed. You know, I'm going to go down and do some ayahuasca or take some mushrooms or whatever it is and, and everything will be better. And so I'm curious to get your take on those two things. You know, one, do you see our culture really grappling with existential anxiety? And two, are psychedelics the silver bullet that people have been looking for? Mm, great. So like who in their right mind would say that they would want to be with discomfort on mm. any level? Like we are programmed evolutionarily programmed to have discomfort kind of set off alarms and when we go into we bring these big beautiful minds into trying to get rid of that so on the most basic level i i know in my own experience and working with people i understand that like just show me how to feel better whereas uh, the work can as you're as you're pointing to is more about getting better the difference of feeling better and getting better at feeling so increasing this window of tolerance. Sometimes when people, when we talk about tolerance, it's like, well, just toughen up. And, you know, men can have this, like, been hearing that, or they'd be like, well, I'll just call us up and then I'll be able to like be with discomfort more. A different frame for that is increasing the window of tolerance. That means that you have more space to make choices and stay connected with yourself kind of sandwiched by the higher end maybe being chaos or just like kind of out of control and the lower end being rigid. I don't know what you found, but in, in my work, I found men tended towards more of the rigidity or can aspects of them can just be more rigid, rigid and kind of shut down. Whereas we're wanting to kind of find this middle ground and extend the window of tolerance. So in the same way that we work out, we build up the weight, you know, over time. So we can build, we can build that and doing challenging things really be helpful for that. The existential, existential inquiry is real. If it's not real for you, and then whether you or, or someone you love gets a diagnosis and then it gets real, real. So psychedelics very much are not a, a silver bullet. And yet there's this amazing opportunity, an incredible opportunity. Like Connor, you and I could, well, 
walk through the rest of our lives and maybe not have a wildly novel experience, like other dimensional experience for the rest of our lives. And yet psychedelics provide this opportunity, particularly when held in a safe set and setting to expand one's uh, perception of what this life is. And what we get a little bit of distance from is a sense of self. So sense of self can come up in two major ways. It can be like, well, it's body. And I, I know I kind of live in this body and it, it ends with my skin. Another sense of self is, is our narrative, the, the kind of autobiographical story we've been told and then also have learned, taken on, and also what we imagine for ourselves out in the future. And with the assistance, and I like consider it like partnering with psychedelic medicine in a safe set and setting, that we can actually expand that. Well, one, it, it tends to happen. It can blur or distort this idea of where I end and where the rest of the world is and other people and other energies are. And then also the narrative, almost like taking off a jacket. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I was wearing that jacket for a really long time and I was really identified. I thought that was me. And then as the medicine wears off, there's a, there's a stretching of the mind. It's like, well, that's interesting because on the jacket, to say what that metaphor is like, there's that gnarly patch or there's that thing that doesn't, I don't like about that. So hmm, maybe I can be in a conversation and explore that with friends, family, or, or therapist about like, wow, where did that come from? And do I have to keep subscribing over and over again to that, either a kind of a victim or like something happened to me or I'm limited in that way? Mm. Um, so I think these, these are ways that psychedelics can help us explore. Yeah. And so, so let's, let's talk about psychedelics. Let's broach the subject a little bit more. There are many different forms of psychedelics. And I think one of the interesting things I've talked about this on the show in the past. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was to kind of go deeper into the subject because ketamine assisted therapy there's uh, psilocybin, right? What people call mushrooms. There's 5-MeO-DMT. There's ayahuasca. I mean, there's MDMA therapy. There's a huge wide gamut that all of a sudden in the last five to 10 years has really entered into the mainstream conversation. And so I would love to just talk a little bit about what is legal, <laughs> you know, and I know that that's, that's sort of state dependent. Yeah, state dependent, country dependent. I want to talk about set and setting. I want to talk about what does assisted therapy look like, some of the methods. I really want to get into the, to the gamut of it, but I would love to just start broad at first of what is a psychedelic? Like, I don't think that people actually often talk about that. Like, what is a psychedelic and what, what does it actually do? Great. So I love it and, and pop in here if, yeah. if I, I get on a tear here. Um, let's start with the, the word psychedelic. It was coined in the 50s. And it was, it's developed between two words, psyche and delune, two Greek words. Psyche meaning mind or soul, and delune meaning uh, manifest or revealing. So soul revealing, mind manifesting. And I think, they, I think they nailed it because these compounds that come from many different sources, and we'll talk about that, that they, they help reveal. I, I think of it as a kind of a constraint releasing model, like we're kind of looking through this little keyhole as part of our, like our perspective and how we see the world, how we experience ourselves. And then with this medicine and, and kind of what's happening in the brain and the subjective experience is of bringing more information in. 
making connections that haven't been made before. You might be thinking about a problem that you've, you've traversed over and over again. And with the help of a medicine, again, in a, in a safe set and setting can provide an insight or stoke curiosity towards another kind of angle on that. So important also to say these medicines have been, majority of these medicines have been around for a really, 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 really long time. Talking 3000 BC, they're in uh, paintings and cave paintings in, in Europe. There's evidence of peyote use in North and South America, thousands of years BC. And, and here we are at this kind of really interesting moment where there's this MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has just wrapped their phase three FDA study for to get approval for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And uh, we we'll, can talk about that medicine, but just to say that there's this long history. There's also the, the kind of the shutdown of research that happened in the 70s. The Nixon administration kind of politicalized and, and, and really, it was really, really unfortunate. It, it hurts my heart to think about how many people went without access to these medicines. And of course, the, the interruption, the pause of research that would have us in a different place as far as availability to these medicines. So in the and uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a lot of research going. There was international conferences. There was a lot of different studies on LSD and other things. And then that all came to a screeching halt with, the, with a um, Controlled Substance Act of 1970. And here we are with this kind of next wave. And it's different because in the, in the 60s, there were no, it's been said, there's, there were no like parents around to like, oh, it's like kids getting drugs for the first time. Woohoo! We now have kind of call it like the old guard or the people that have been working with medicines or even people that have had their experiences with psychedelics in the, in the 50s and 60s are now um, part of the conversation. So I feel really good about how this, it's been called a psychedelic renaissance, is, is unfolding. The research, a deep bow to Rick Doblin, the founder of, of MAPS, who has really stewarded a, the MDMA as their kind of lead. So this is like 30 some years in the making. When MDMA was made illegal in 1985, they've kind of been on a quest to make MDMA and other medicines available, legal and safely used and the education around it for therapeutic and not only therapeutic, but, but uh, ceremonial or celebratory uses as well. You, you have used the word medicines quite a few times. Can you maybe just elaborate on, on why that word specifically? Yeah. So when I teach clinicians about working with ketamine to use it in, in private practice or MDMA as part of the research study, I tend to put on the, on the PowerPoint just drugs, big letters. And then I let everybody just kind of feel into that a little bit. And of course, there's the did you um, in Canada have the Just Say No campaign? Did mm -hmm. that make it up there? Yeah. Yeah. There were songs, jugs, jugs, jugs. Some are good. Some are bad. They had the whole <laughs> campaign. And then the, the what was it? It's like, this is your brain. And they would crack oh. an egg into a friend. This is your brain on drugs. And then you just fuck it all up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that got the fear in me. And as a high school and collegiate athlete, I'm like, nope, no thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to be there on game day and I'm not going to touch that stuff. So 
all that's to point to a stigma that is very much embedded in most people's minds. I, I think most people's minds. That said, the the votes are coming in over fifty percent for decriminalization and legalization, and we can talk about that. So we're working against a stigma, and when I mm. refer to them as medicine, I mean them in combination and a, a therapeutic relationship. Ideally, I wish everyone would have a well-trained, experienced psychedelic therapist at their side for transformational use of these these med- with these medicines. The reality is, is that's not going to be available or accessible anytime really soon. But to have to work with these medicines, there's a, yeah, there's that word that it's that we're partnering with them with an intention, and then we get to fill in that blank, whether it's mm-hmm. healing, whether it's exploration of consciousness, that it's in combination. And so I often use the word medicine um, counter to drugs, these things that, you know, frying an egg and your, your, your brain on drugs kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, what I find fascinating is they, they have been medicines historically throughout history in our, in our cultures. And if you look at the role that something like psilocybin has played or ayahuasca has played, they have played culturally the role of a kind of medicine that the shaman would administer to somebody at, at different phases or, or places in their lives. Are, are you able to speak at all just very briefly to the role that these medicines have played historically for people and, and maybe when an individual in the past would have taken one of these substances? Sure thing. And one more comment on your so do you want to start very broad? All of these medicines that we're talking about, save ketamine, it's available by prescription, a physician, they are schedule one. So federally, they are illegal. Schedule one means, I think the text is something like highly addictive, no medical use. And when it has that label on it, this is why research is slow, so slow and got shut down in the 70s is because no academic is researcher is going to put time and attention into something that is schedule one. As far as over time, I think what it points to in my mind is this innate curiosity to explore our experience of being alive. We have a a mutual friend and we're a hat. Holy shit, we're alive. And it speaks to the awe and excitement of this. So wanting to explore that and having tools and medicines to do that. And as far as I understand, when I read anything of like past cultures, community, 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 this idea of going one-on-one or even two therapists and one client, that is like, I imagine there's some, if someone could hear that a hundred, couple hundred years ago, their head would explode. Like, what are you doing? Like get in community, get around a fire because this is the way we live and this is how we see each other and this is how we grow. So I think for rite of passage. And I'm curious, like your exposure and like, I don't even know how men today getting a driver's license, is that considered like kind of a rite of passage these days? Whereas a vision vision quest or a way to kind of invite somebody to level up. Um, I think we've lost that. And I think these medicines we can, we can borrow from while honoring where they came from, kind of borrow from that and, and use these as consciousness and even uh, amplifying our experience towards just a more mature, evolved way of being in community. A mentor of mine, Dewey, I think it was him that said this. I might be 
maybe misquoting, I'm not too sure, but we're wounded in relationship and we need to heal in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so the notion there is, and it's why I do so much group work, men, men's weekends where there's 25 plus men, on, online stuff where there's groups. And I, I know you do a good amount of group work as well. It's a profound experience. And I think the reason why I was asking the question about the the historical aspect is from my understanding is that when somebody within the village or within the community had gone through something harmful, damaging, traumatic, et cetera, psychedelics were used as a means of helping them through that wow. in a, in a community setting. And sometimes they would be on it while the community was holding them, or it would be a ritual to actually co- connect the community in a, in a deeper way where the community would actually partake in it collectively. So Let's talk a little bit about psychedelics as a healing modality and what that looks like because you use ketamine. I'm curious as to why ketamine specifically, why is that the, the specific medicine that, that, you, that you use? Right on. The short answer would be it's legal and available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I do is, is above ground. And actually the first time... I experienced ketamine myself, see in my mind, me crawling out of the house to throw up outside. It was a wild experience, very interesting, but I did not see the therapeutic value. And that had to do with my set and setting. So I have since done quite a bit of training and now I'm training others, but to work ketamine is a different medicine in, in different doses, or it's obviously the same medicine, but in different doses. So I work with ketamine in two dose ranges, so a psycholytic, so a lower dose where there's a little bit of alteration, non-ordinary state. It's not like alcohol, but as a way to someone who's psychedelic naive, I can say, oh, it's kind of like three glasses of wine in terms of the amount of alteration, meaning you're not going to forget who you are, you're going to, and you're going to feel different. And you might even have some different thoughts and different like your perception is going to shift a little bit. And then there's the higher dose, from called a psychedelic dose, where that is much more of a, an inward journey, like eye shades, headphones, and we do prep work, and get clear on intention, and then we have this space afterwards, and then also the next day to talk about the material that came up and how to work with that. Back to the psycholytic dose, that tends to be it well, it stays relational. So just as you and I are here, we're talking and we're in conversation, kind of goes like that with periods of going inside. And while the client is altered a bit, one of the ways to, to speak to that is there some of their protector parts, some of the aspects of defensiveness, it gets softened and it opens mm-hmm. up this space to deal with essentially can be traumatic developmental or otherwise trauma without having the sympathetic nervous system kind of do its thing. It was just like danger, danger, danger. So we get, it creates a uh, therapeutic working space. And important to say, I, I work as part of a team. So there's whoever's prescribing. I have a, a team of psychiatrists. They were in conversation about dose and about how the experience is going. And just in terms of, I think there's a lot of people that have started to do psychedelic assisted therapy or using things like ayahuasca or psilocybin for addiction. I've heard there's a number of people that have started to advocate for something like ayahuasca as this thing that has helped them really kick their 
alcoholism or their cocaine addiction or whatever it might be. What What's your take on that? And what is the literature showing in terms of because it seems a bit of like an oxymoron, right? A little bit ironic of like, I'm going to use a different sort of quote unquote drug to get me off of this other drug. And so I'm curious to get your take on that. Does the research or the literature show anything in terms of how these medicines like ketamine and ayahuasca and psilocybin are supporting people and their sort of traditional addictions? Yeah, it's as you said, it's ironic. Oh, addicted to drugs? Try this one. Yeah, try this other drug. (laughs) And as you alluded to, there are there's research around ketamine, psilocybin for smoking, heavy drinking, more anecdotal with ayahuasca of how that's shifted people's relationship with different drugs. There's there's one ibogaine, which is a, essentially a, a bark from a, an African tree that particularly has been potent, and there's been research done around this that it takes people on a very long trip we're talking more can be more than 24 hours and basically ibogaine you'll be done with it before it's done with you mm-hmm. and what tends to happen there is a review pretty consistently it's not like people are set up like you're going to review your life and this is how it's going to go but rather many many people report that there's a in that space again the set and setting the container that people review their life and then they make a shift they, they come out a little bit different, not wildly different, but there's something that happens there. Some of the research that I've read, there's also a biological component to working with ibogaine that decreases the biological drive to mm. kind of re-up or, or have a, an opioid. And so, yeah, even to, to level it up, or I have around integration groups where people have, have come and they were addicted to heroin. And after an ibogaine treatment journey, they were no longer addicted. So these, there's a, a potency to these medicines. Psilocybin, yeah, I mentioned that it's, it's outperformed. It's nearly doubled the, the results for smoking sensation, ketamine and other things for, for alcohol, heavy drinking. So there's a lot of tools here. And, then, and if we jump to like five, 10 years from now, we're going to have a kind of a menu of different things to really get personal with what mm. different people need for, for different issues. Can we talk about what's happening in the brain and the body and the nervous system when you have taken a psychedelic? I know it might vary depending on the psychedelic that you've taken, but I think generally if you look at something like ayahuasca, DMT, there's some similarities of what's happening neurologically and within the body that are producing some of these results that we're talking about. So can you just maybe break down for us in some simple terms and then maybe we can go a little bit deeper into what's what's going on that's actually producing some of the results in terms of the hallucinations that might happen, but also the the release and the healing that is often happening within the person that's experiencing it. Love that you said release. Yeah, so generally, and if we're... Uh, again, I'm going to kind of take ketamine and, and set it aside because it's it's not one of the classic psychedelics and it, it works more on the glutamate system. So it kind of works on this other network in the mind. And my work with ketamine and IFS in kind of a, a concierge package is like we're setting that one aside for now because the classic psychedelics, LSD, mescaline, mescaline comes from different cactus, peyote, San Pedro, LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, as we've been talking about, 
and DMT, the active ingredient in ayahuasca tea. So these tend to work mostly on the serotonin system. So they kind of, the the actual chemicals, the molecule are very similar to serotonin and they increase activity on that level. And the subjective effects tend to to touch a couple different areas. They, They impact or alter thinking, perception, emotions, for sure. And sense of self kind of spoke to sense of self earlier on. So there's what's going on in the brain. And actually, if we want to talk brain, MDMA, of which I'm at the good fortune to be part of the co-therapist on the MDMA for PTSD study. What we know about people's brain that have PTSD, it's, it's, they're a little bit different. They've been, because of the experiences, they've been wired a little bit differently. And people have PTSD, their brains, their amygdala is hyperactive. So this is, or there's increased activity there. And this is the, the fear response area of the brain. Prefrontal cortex can, can be dialed down or, or reduced activity. And the, the hippocampus, um, that's affected as well. And MDMA actually changes for a, a period of time, duration while the medicine's active. It changes the brain in all these areas in the opposite direction. So there's decreased activity in the amygdala. So you can imagine if somebody's talking, their intention is to come and like process traumatic material to have that fear turned down, Mm -hmm. an amazing tool to have the prefrontal cortex turn up so that they're able to bring their logical mind to situation. And then the the activity in the the hippocampus and amygdala essentially is associated with taking things into long-term storage versus it being like really present right now. Mm -hmm. So you combine that biological activity in the brain and hold somebody, support somebody in a therapeutic container relationship and to talk about just the setting, the environment being comfortable. They kind of have everything that they need there. They have somebody sober kind of looking onto them who also knows them. So within the study and all these studies that have been being put, showing up in the media, they, it's not just somebody showing up, all right, give me the psilocybin and see what it does to my anxiety. There is a relationship built. There's, of course, medical checkout, inclusion, exclusion criteria. And then they build a bit of a relationship. People, there's a therapist or two therapists most often that kind of know what's going on. And then they, this, this space is created for them to review and get into some of the material, some of the kind of dead ends of material, things they've been over and just get stuck in. They're able to have this other experience. I like to think of it as, as even though the you know to do it to do an FDA study to get something approved, you need to pick a diagnosis. So you you know uh, hardcore research. You can study like how does this affect that, and we do you know all the scales and things along that. But what we've been finding is oftentimes when we're actually in the medicine days and it's like a six eight hour day. That people may re- revisit some of that material, but oftentimes it goes back to early childhood and some of the kind of things that happen there and the, the space that's made for someone to re-experience and to bring in a little bit of IFS to have their higher self, not just their adult self that knows, oh, yeah, looking back, that was a tough situation. I'm talking about a higher self. And I connect with my clients and I invoke there, I help them invoke their higher self to bring them into these situations to know and re-experience not a trauma, but to to meet their younger selves and be that resource then and update 
those younger parts moving forward that have major impact in the rest of their life. They're not having to like guard against certain situations or not having to cringe or, or act out in ways because they're in relationship with these younger parts that were kind of left behind. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a very good description of, of what's happening. Um, let's pull on this thread a little bit more. So from my understanding and basic knowledge of psychedelics, it also impacts your default mode network. So it quiets the, the default mode network, which is relatively, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's somewhat responsible for like your ego or like your ego chatter. Is that accurate? Um, there's some debate around this okay. and it's, it's kind of, I've tracking it for many years and it's, there's, there's different takes on this. And I guess the main thing with that is the default one network speaking generally, it's a, it's a system. There's a number, it's a, it's a network. It's connecting a number of different parts and the most recent reading on it, there's some aspects, some parts of the default own network. So not to nitpick, but it's, it's, it's an ongoing, as is all of science and being alive, it's kind of an ongoing conversation. But it does, there is verifiable evidence that when people have some call it ego death or ego disillusionment, that there is a shift or there's a higher, it shows up on the scales as a better outcomes when people mm. have an experience where their sense of self gets expanded or falls away for a time. Can you imagine wearing the same thing over and over again, not even knowing you could take it off for a moment? Mm. So that brief respite. And a lot of these studies and some with psilocybin and, and John Hopkins, some are single dose psilocybin that impact people six months and years down the road. That this one experience of being able to just open kind of the aperture, the lens greatly. And I, what, I've, what I've found both in private practice and, and in the, the research, and there's a point I want to make about that, is that it stokes people's curiosity to learn more about themselves, to bring kind of this true self, this higher self forward. So briefly about the MDMA research. So we broke up phase we, as if it was like one of my, so I, I chimed in on that. <laughs> they broke up the phase three into two different studies, which got a little bit interrupted by, by COVID. But the, the gist is that 90 participants went through this protocol, which is about four months long. You only get MDMA three times, about a month apart, three times. And there's preparation and there's integration, meaning there's, there's non-medicine sessions in between each of these, three of them in between each of these medicine sessions. And what the results showed is that a high percentage, 60, 67% of people after doing this four-month protocol, no longer qualified for PTSD. Like they came back down in the, in the normal, normal range. And wow. this is not like garden variety, like of the people that were in that first phase on average was about 15 years of suffering from PTSD and Jeez. they are no longer have PTSD. And here's the, the kicker that I really wanted to, to come back to is that in the year follow-up, those numbers got better. <laughs> no other intervention People continued to get better. And what me and my colleagues point to is that there was not only the medicine, but there was also a way that we held the medicine, inviting people 
um, and literally in the in the maps protocol, it's inner directed. So it's it's not we're not like making interpretations and like, hey, come over here. What about this? What about that? Yes, we're very engaged, but it's really acknowledging this inner healing intelligence and putting people in touch with that and to where they they get better over time. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. I love that study and just that affirmation of the healing intelligence within, right? Sort of pointing people back towards what they're capable of on the system that sometimes can get interfered with when trauma and PTSD happens. There's a lot that we could talk about in there, but I want to maybe maybe just dive in because I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this. You've talked about set and setting some of the research that's there, integration, IFS. I want to explore these components of it. What does set and setting mean? How do you start to set that environment up? Let's just start there and then we can layer in these other pieces. And again, you know, I think just making sure like we're not giving the people these this information so that you can <laughs> go and do your own ride at home. I think it's very important that you that you have somebody there that's that's qualified because I, I have heard a number of tragic stories of, of people really having bad experiences solo and not having the supportive community there with them or going with somebody untrained and having a having a, a negative experience and there can be some some detrimental side effects so i want to just really emphasize that that you're you're doing this with somebody that knows what the hell they're doing so with that yeah. said and if there's anything else that you want to say on that please add in but i would love to talk about set and setting uh, I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and your your care around this. So uh, people tuning in to a, a conversation about psychedelics, obviously there's some some interest there and we really want to ground it in safety. Like uh, the way that we're rolling out these MDMA, rolling, rolling out MDMA is in a, is in a, a, a safe way to have let people experience these medicines without yeah, just in a in a safe way to let them can partner with them in, in this healing work. The set and setting is a phrase coined a long time ago. The set refers to the mindset. Mindset both for the mostly for the participant, but it also includes the therapist or the guide. So I just want to make a blanket, just kind of echo what you said is like the importance of while there will be people that do their solo journeys, set yourself up. It is a kindness. It is a self-love action to have somebody there, ideally sober, who can be there with you and just like turn the lights down when the lights get too intense. That open the door, let, 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 let's breeze in. That you're heard when you say that thing that breaks your own heart. Mm. And then that becomes kind of a conversation and you get to circle back to that and deepen in that. So a uh, big push for people to have a, a caring person next to them have a travel buddy a travel buddy yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like a travel trip. buddy yeah. yeah it's gonna be a round trip you're gonna come back but <laughs> take a take a buddy with you yeah so that's the setting everything that has to do with the mindset like actually everything kind of inside one person how well did you sleep how are your relationships going what's your work stress level like like noting these things have an awareness of these things because Jumping to um, Stan Groff, who's kind of a, a, in a way, kind of a godfather of, of this psychedelic renaissance, has sat with 5,000 people in LSD trips and also developed holotropic breath work, as, as mentioned before. So he called 
psychedelics a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. So mm. having a sense of like where you're at is really important because it's about to get amplified. And I would also refer back to like, I felt like my good fortune of having a mindfulness practice actually prepared me to be with that huge experience. And there are people every day that are psychedelic naive that are just basically plugging into a power socket and not knowing their landscape. So again, to, to have somebody there, super, super important. The setting is the, the physical environment. So the space that's around, is it comfortable? Loud noises? Are you going to have some options to make some changes when, if, if, things, if things come up? And to reiterate here that non-resistance is kind of the name, is the name of the game here. It's like whatever's arising, you can turn towards. If there is a gnarly monster that's kind of in, in your mind's eye that's coming up, great. Get to know them. Start a conversation. Lay in their mouth. Let them destroy you. Just allow, allow, allow and see what unfolds from that. Bad trips, by and large, come about from resistance. And just to add a layer there, if you notice a lot of resistance coming up, great, you noticed it. So can you be with the resistance and even some softening around that can, can occur? Yeah, I... Maybe is it okay if I just share a, a personal Please, experience? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think if if you've been listening to my show for long enough, you probably have heard me talk about psychedelics before and, and my journey with them. But I have been on numerous, numerous, numerous journeys, and I remember one incident where I was on a medicine, plant medicine. We'll just leave that where it is, and I suddenly found myself in the body of a Hispanic woman who was holding her child in her arms and her child just passed away, just died and she was cool. grieving. And every part of me was like, Oh, I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be experiencing this. This is terrible. I don't think I like this. Like, why the fuck am I going through this? This doesn't make any sense. You know, and the resistance started to come up. Cause I was like, you know, this isn't mine to grieve and it's not mm -hmm. mine to feel. And, and something about it, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to be there. And, and so the more that I allowed myself to just be present to it, and the more that I just allowed myself to be like, okay, I'm resisting this all good, breathe and feel, breathe and feel, breathe and feel. And I just sort of softened into it. The more that the experience worked through me and the less sort of frightening, unwanted it became. And that's, this is probably a, a light experience to what some people might go through, right? You're talking about monsters and dragons and demons. Me, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I've definitely had those as well. Yeah. So I think having that type of experience and, and I think what most people struggle with when they come out of a psychedelic experience is trying to communicate what they actually experienced, what they went through. Mm -hmm. And it can be very challenging because some people will say, well, I saw this and I was experiencing this and I witnessed that. And it's, it's almost like trying to describe the dream state in some capacity where it's like, well, it's nonsensical to some degree because it's the un unconscious being amplified as you're talking about. But there is some sense to it in terms of your experience of it. And so let's shift this conversation a little bit into integration and parts work and IFS. Why IFS for you specifically? Why do you think that's important with psychedelic assisted therapy? And then secondly, what does integration look like? 
for psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy. Great. Yeah, man, that did not sound light. Being <laughs> holding. I was a, like, no, I don't want to grieve the loss of this child. It's not mine. <laughs> wow. Heart wrenching. Wow. Yeah. So IFS, yeah, it synergizes really well with psychedelic assisted work. The briefest of introduction to internal family systems it is a model that's been around 30, 40 years. It's evidence-based, but it's very intuitive. We all tend to have a sense like, oh, we have different parts. Part of me wants this, part of me wants that. Sometimes they are polarized or, or conflict. So it holds that this, it's, it's the natural state of the mind to be subdivided, kind of like sub-personalities, really. You're, you're nodding, yeah. And I imagine most of your audiences as well. Really intuitive. And it also holds that there is a self in that model, it's kind of capital S self. There is a higher self, kind of the sun behind the clouds. No matter how stormy it is, whatever parts are active, behind it all, there's a sun. And there is this, that self is kind of core self, higher self. And there's this awareness that can know, it can embrace, it can be with. And this model very much holds that that should be your leader. So Hunter, you speak a lot about leadership. And as far as per personal leadership, it's like this this is what we want leading. We can have a committee, like at the round table or a committee table of different parts. It might be like a very strong protector part, a very a full range of different parts. And so because this model holds that kind of frame, that the, there's an inner healing intelligence, this is when like, so when no matter what's arising during a medicine journey, that it can be held it can be met. There's not, I mean, even in regular psychotherapy, if someone's having a panic attack, many therapists will like, oh, let me ground you. Let me get rid of that. Let's, let's find a way to either distract or, or something. And the model, even without psychedelics, IFS would go, okay, let's get interested about the panic and even start up a conversation with it, allow it to be there and get to know what job it's doing. So coming back to a, a psychedelic journey, there is nothing that can arise, that can't be like held and met by this capital S self. And then the way that that kind of flows into integration, anytime I talk about integration, I want to take it all the way back to preparation. So before medicine comes in, we want to be able to, one, have an established, call it a therapeutic alliance relationship that I kind of know your story, what it is your aims and goals are, some of your yeah, the pieces you want to work on and, and how that's been for you thus far. And then we set an intention. Then there's the medicine session. And oftentimes, different parts will come up pretty invariably, like younger parts that haven't been heard or seen or felt that are really hanging on, these really young, vulnerable parts. And then we can even kind of map out the system where there's the, like a bully part or a shutdown part that come in to like not let that feeling emerge anymore. This model is really brilliant in its way of mapping that. And then integration, most people refer to it as like the time after or the medicine is wearing off or the day after or what do you do with that, which is, is useful. I, of course, include the prep and the, whole, and the whole thing. But in working in this model, it makes it quite easy to acknowledge what arose and then to be in and actually grow a relationship with that. So if there was a, a five-year-old who wasn't allowed to be mad or sad or wasn't able to express, and then these kind of bullies came up around it within oneself, 
that we can get to know those protectors and we can literally check in with them. So a minute a day, we can sit down, acknowledge the protectors, acknowledge the young one that didn't have the environment to express. And that literally builds a relationship with the different aspects of oneself and letting your whole system know that your self, capital S self, can now lead in a way. So these younger parts are kind of freed up for their more intimacy-loving, playful, creative, natural, non-extreme roles in, in one system. And also just with integration, um, it can look like a lot of different things. You bring a great point about like, how do you describe an ineffable situation? <laughs> right? And it, I actually warn people, prepare people that journaling is, is really helpful because it's just you and, and, and putting those thoughts down and it can feel disappointing or even kind of create a little bit of distance when if someone, if we feel dropped or not held in like this incredible experience that we might have trouble articulating, but to be able to be in a conversation over time about what happened is really helpful. And the last thing about integration, think of it of, of what we've just simply of learning, calling it learning. So we've just had this expanded state. Like, what do I learn from that? And how do I want to bring that into my daily life? How do I want to be more kind to myself? Do I want to prioritize relationships a bit more? Do I want to honor and be grateful for the body that I have? So many different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a, a welcoming home of the parts of us that have been abandoned or neglected or that we've come to dislike in some way or reject. You know, we could put many different words to that, but it's a welcoming home of those parts. That's how I usually describe it that we allow them to enter back into the to the home of our psyche of our soul of our body and we're no longer at odds with them and that i feel is a is a huge part of the healing is that we're not in resistance to those aspects of our younger self and we can begin to not only sense make what happened but in some ways we we experience ourselves differently rather than having this sort of internal civil war happening, we now have a more peaceful state internally because we're not at odds with that part of ourself or part of our past or part of, you know, our family or whoever it might be, right? That's, that's representative. And so I really appreciate that, that framework. I know we're, we're pretty much up for time. So I want to, I want to honor that I want to just open the door for you to share anything else that we may have missed or that you think that people should know when it comes to psychedelics, psychedelic assisted therapy, or any of the modalities that we've talked about. Yeah, great. And on that last note of what you, you shared, so well said, and we can really move from kind of a, a civil war to more of like a jazz band where everybody kind of chimes in and has their part, but there's like this harmony and flow to it internally while being essentially stewarded led by this higher self that we have access to. Um, so things coming up, people can find me on my website, apracticeoffreedom.com. I have some trainings coming up in both IFS and ketamine-assisted work and ketamine-assisted IFS work. It's a, a great resource is maps, maps.org. You can read through a wide range of research you can read the whole MAPS protocol um, mm. for the MDMA for PTSD research. 
Another great two other resources, psychedelic.support. This is uh, an educational organization, but they also have a a search engine for uh, integration therapists. So if you've had an experience in the past, you know, I've had people come to me, it's like, yo, you know, 10 years ago, this LSD trip, I'm still chewing on it. Let's, and we can make a space to work with that. And then the other resource, Arrowid, and I will have that in the, in the notes. I hope that um, it's it's a community based thing where there's a lot of different descriptions. It's around dose um, and uh, different experiences of kind of what to expect. So that's a great resource as well. Outstanding. Well, I feel like this is maybe the start of the conversation and uh, it'd be interesting to have you back on and for us to kind of go into each of those psychedelics individually and talk about different experiences and what to expect. Because I I don't know if I've necessarily heard that type of conversation before and it struck me at the end of this of like, oh, it'd be really interesting to talk about the difference of the experience in ketamine versus psilocybin versus ayahuasca and and what people can expect and, and how or MDMA and, and why they might use one versus the other. And so I don't know if you're open for that, but it'd be cool to have that conversation in the in the very near future, just as like a part two to this. I love it. So open to it. And I think it's an important conversation because in just five, certainly 10 years from now, we're going to have, again, like a menu and, and people are going to want to know, like they're not only just kind of gravitate towards, but in conjunction with what issues or, or what it is, how they're looking to grow. Yeah, I'd love that. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, I look forward to that. And for everyone that's out there listening, please don't forget to man it forward. Share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy it, will benefit from it, could use it. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. We'll have the links to Nick's work in the show notes and all of the websites that he mentioned for resources. We will have him back on the show soon to have that conversation because that would be awesome. Uh, I'm excited for that one as well. So Nick, thank you so much for joining me, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing in the world. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. And for everyone that's out there, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another exciting conversation with another inspiring individual. And until then, uh, we'll see you. We'll see you soon. Be well. Mm-hmm.